In this week's podcast, a young man in a rough biker bar in the 1970s of Missoula almost gets shot. A young woman shepherd in the Falkland Islands is invited to a debauchery-filled Christmas celebration. A young girl growing up in Germany is forced to flee West Germany after the Berlin Wall falls and hiker trash on the Pacific Coast Trail discovers an unexpected music festival. Welcome to the Tell Us Something podcast. I'm Mark Moss. Our podcast today was recorded in front of a live audience on December 11th, 2018 at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. Eight storytellers shared their true personal story on the theme, Did That Really Happen? Today we hear from four of those storytellers. Our first story comes to us from Jim Beyer, who faces down a woman that accidentally points a gun at him in a rough biker bar in the 1970s of Missoula, as she tries to defend herself against a brutal attack from another guy at the bar. Jim calls his story, I used to be cool. A note for our more sensitive listeners, Jim's story describes a violent bar fight. Thanks for listening. These days, I'm just another old fat guy on a Harley with the wind blowing through his, my thinning uh, gray hair. Anyway, this story is from 35 years ago when I was cooler, at least I think so. When I walked through the door of the Park Hotel, nostalgia waved over me. The grand old hotel had fallen on hard times by the mid-70s. Upstairs was a flop house, and downstairs was the best dive bar in Montana. The, The bar still featured a nice old walnut back bar. It had a bandstand and a huge dance floor. It catered to loggers and railroad men and Indians and cowboys and hippies and wayward women and the occasional college students that came down for a little adventure. Next door to the park was the tap room. And as the name suggests, They served nothing but domestic draft beer by the glass or by the pitcher for incredibly low prices. In order to get to the tap room, you either had to go out in the sidewalk and down the street, or you could take the shortcut through the men's room. (laughs) There's a legal reason for that, but I won't explain. Um, the, The men's room featured a huge porcelain trough for a urinal. And when we were done peeing, we'd throw in a couple of pennies or a nickel just to help uh, the poor. (laughs) Anyway, um, (laughs) I hate to laugh at my own joke, but... (laughs) Well, the, the Brothers Motorcycle Club, when I joined them in 1977, used to hang out at the, at the Park Hotel. We would go down on Saturday nights and dance to, to the songs and music of the Big Sky Mudflaps, and we'd swing dance and try to pick up college girls. It was a wild place, and just about anything could happen. But to liven things up, the bikers used to ride their choppers through the door and do a burnout on the dance floor before being chased away by the bouncers. By the end of the decade, The music died at the Park Hotel. They stopped having live music on Saturday nights, and so everyone drifted away, including the college students and the brothers. We found better bars to to hang out, like Luke's and the Top Hat on Front Street. It was a beautiful June 
afternoon when I walked through that door, and it was three days before my wedding. Inside were four people. Longshot, who was talking, uh, trying to make time with this scraggly-looking woman at a table by the bar, and Cap, who was sitting on a bar stool talking to the bartender. Now, Longshot, Cap, and I were all former brothers. We had quit for different reasons. I, I dropped out because the bike club scene was becoming too much like the uh, Sons of Anarchy. And they quit because they joined another club that was a step up the social, higher, uh, social ladder. They were wearing their bright new uh, club patch on their, on their leather vests when I saw them. When Cap saw me, he waved me over and bought me a blue ribbon beer. We sat down and we exchanged pleasantries for a couple of minutes. And then he got to the point. He hinted that he wanted me to come and join the new bike club he was in. You don't just ask a guy because that's not cool. You want them to join you, not you ask, ask them to join. So I'm, I'm going, yeah, okay. And so I was listening to a sales pitch. He's telling me what a great bunch of guys these are, how much fun he's having on motorcycle rides and chasing women and drinking and partying. And I'm going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Sipping my beer and nodding in agreement. Anyway, behind us, the voices get a little bit louder and then louder. And finally, there's a crescendo of screeching and yelling and chairs and tables crashing to the floor. I look to my right and Cap slowly steps off the bar stool and slinks away from me. And I look in front of me and the bartender slowly lowers his head behind the back bar. I turn around. Uh, Longshot, who looks like Lurch, is over six feet tall, very muscular, and covered with biker tat no, I'm sorry, prison tattoos, which is worse than biker tattoos. He is towering over this poor, cowering woman. And in her defense, she has pulled a pistol out. And she's holding it at arm's length, pointed at me. Oh, fuck. <laughs> now, that fuck conveys a lot of meanings in different ways. There's, there's fear, there's... Uh, there's uh, uh, curiosity, there's um, anger, and all of those come to play later. Uh, the term does not include any sexual encounters with my penis, although we'll get to that part too. <laughs> so i looking straight at this woman who is looking straight at Hal and pointing her gun at me. And it is going up and down, up and down, from my foreskin to my forehead, <laughs> from my eyeballs to my low balls. It's a chicken shit little nickel-plated 25 caliber automatic, but when it's pointed at my forehead, it looks like a cannon. At times of stress, they say that uh, time slows down. Well, that's bullshit. Actually, what happens is you become hyper, hyper vigilant. 
And everything you see is imprinted in your brain. You seem to remember it forever. Such as the bartender was wearing a white shirt. And when he sank below the bar, I could see two small holes in the antique heavy mirror behind him from a previous altercation. <laughs> so at this point, I start, you know, the stuff is going on in my head. And I think, the first thing I think of is, is this is really gonna hurt. The second thing is, is that all I have? I'm 33 years old and nothing more, and I'm getting married on Saturday. So another thought comes into my head. Several years before, my club brother Ron was, uh, got crossways with a woman at a party, and several days later, he was hunched over a beer at the tap room and her angry husband came in and capped him in the back of the head with a 22 pistol. He was 21 years old when he bled out on the barroom's floor and his shooter spent two years in Deer Lodge prison. So at the end of this reverie, of course things are progressing, Longshot has thrown up his hands in surrender and has stepped backwards. But this was only a ruse. He spun like, he did a pirouette like a ballerina and backhanded the woman across the face. The gun went flying and she fell on the floor. He proceeded to start kicking her like a soccer ball. And then I exhaled and I was pissed. I said, that bitch could have killed me. And that son of a bitch, he was causing it all. By him slapping her, she could have pulled the trigger and I'd be the one lying on the ground. By this time, the bartender popped up again and he says, I'm calling the cops. And I thought, well, it must be time to go. I grabbed my crotch to see if it was wet. It wasn't. But when I stepped off the bar stool, my butthole was so puckered up that I was walking bow-legged. I hobbled out the door and as I, as I was leaving, I told Cap, hey man, I'll call you." <laughs> but I never did. Got on my bike, rode home, and my wife, or my future wife, she says, hey honey, what happened today? Oh, nothing much. Oh, I brought my tuxedo with me. So anyway, the postscript is that I saw Cap a couple of years ago, and he's doing fine. Longshot was killed in a bar fight. My wife and I divorced after 20 years because I cannot communicate. And <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Um, and I was a founding member of a disorganization of antique motorcycle riders called the Montana Legends, who were made up of a bunch of guys that don't like to join real motorcycle clubs. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Jim Beyer has ridden motorcycles in Missoula for over 40 years. He says, I used to be cool, now I am cliche. Our next story is from Caroline Caldwell, who is a shepherd in the Falkland Islands when she is invited on a debauchery-filled Christmas celebration that lasts for days. Riding her horse through town 
and drinking excessively with the locals. She didn't tell mom about this one until after it happened. She calls her story a fucking good Christmas story. Thanks for listening. I was on the last flight to the Falklands before Christmas, about three weeks before. And I was going there to be a shepherdess on a remote island, and what better than to go 600 miles north of Antarctica, the last possible spot. Summertime, right? Balmy 45 degrees, hailstorm weekly, wind cruising at 20 miles an hour on a really calm day. So for three weeks, I was on this old Suzuki dirt bike, which I had never ridden before. Was not informed that dirt bikes even have back brakes. So I fell off every day. Taking sheep in, sorry to them, taking them back out. For three weeks I was doing this, and I was with this old guy named Nick Pitaluga, who loved his sheep dearly, but again, it was just him and I hanging out. And so then these three, she- or these three shears walk up, and one's name was Winky, and he was the ringleader. And uh, he sounded about like his name. And so Winky and I get to chatting, and he's like, oh, where are you from? Oh, United States. And usually if it's LA or New York, it's all the same. And I was like, oh, I'm from Ohio. And he was like, oh, okay, cool, cool. So they shear, and then it's the day before Christmas Eve. And I was just planning on hanging out at the station, Nick and his wife Annie and I, and the, the little rescue sheep that live in the backyard. And uh, Winky was like, well, why don't you come to my house? I was like, oh, okay, Winky. He's like, there's eight other guys staying, which made it feel safer. And um, I was like, cool, okay, I'll file this under things I'm not gonna tell mom until after it's over category. And so it gets rained out because no one likes rain sheep or wet sheep. And so um, Winky and the gang go back and I stay to help with the Christmas lamb slaughter, which is really great because the lambs are again in our front yard. Going to town probably four or five hours later and it's a three hour drive. There's one town, there's one road, there's about 3,000 people, 500,000 sheep. And so driving into town in this rickety old Land Rover and I was like, I. First off, I don't know Winky. I don't know his last name. I don't know where he lives. I don't really know where the town is, but we'll go for it. And so I get into town and Main Street, there's a speed sharing competition. I was like, perfect. I'm gonna meet one of the nine people living in this house. And so I'm walking in and you immediately get a Budweiser in the middle of the road. There's no drinking laws. So I'm like, all right, this is, I know Budweiser. So these three girls come running up to me, Amy, Petra, and Layla, and they're like, oh my God, are you the Mormon from Utah? I was like, no. <laughs> I'm the American over with Nick Pitaluga. And she's like, oh, well, Winky's been going around town this whole speech hearing saying that we're getting a Mormon into town. I was like, I'm really sorry to disappoint. It's like, oh, well, that's fine, because we know you can drink now, because I was getting some funny looks holding that Budweiser. And they said that, well, there's this really big race called the Boxing Day Races. I was like, ooh, is that dirt bikes? Because I do not want to be on one of those. She's like, no, it's horses. Like, perfect, lifelong rider. I would love to be on a horse instead of a bike right now. And so she said, tomorrow morning, we'll pick you up, we'll drive out to my ranch, we'll get a few horses, and we'll bring them to town. It sounds really simple, right? And so the next morning, I'm standing 30 miles away from town in the opposite direction that I came, holding a hot toddy, which in the Falklands is whiskey poured straight into a kettle, heated up till near boiling with an ice cube 
to cool it down so you can really drink it fast. And so, hot toddy in one hand, flask in the other, who knows what's going in that. And we go to this pasture and there's like 50 horses. I'm like, what are you doing with all these horses? And she's like, oh, we ride some, some are old, some are pasture pets. They've all been ridden, just grab one. I was like, okay, I'll go for like the short fat one, Ruby. So it was really cute, short little fat. I was like, she looks middle-aged. I get along with middle-aged ladies pretty well. So I grab her, halt her up. The saddles down there are gaucho saddles, so they're just sheepskin. I was like, this couldn't be any better. And so, Throw the tack on and we start riding out and we're riding to town. We're riding the 30 miles to town and we're already drunk and it's like 8 a.m. It's like, this is gonna go really well. By the way, Rudy, Ruby hadn't been ridden in a decade. She was 15, but hadn't been ridden since she was five. And she doesn't like to leave home. So we argued for like five miles and as we're going and we're opening gates and at every gate, there's a bottle of gin. And tradition is that you have to drink the gin every time you pass to the gate. I'm like, oh my God, you're gonna kill me. I might not even get to tell my mom about this. And so he passed through the gate, drink the gin, only one person has to get off. So I volunteered the first few times, so I'm like, I'm not getting back on if I get off after mile 15. And as you're riding, you're going through all these sheep stations and more riders are coming and you're joining in and, and it's just a really jolly time. And you're not feeling any pain at this point. Ruby's tired and I'm doing great. And uh, every gate we go through, we leave it open. And even in my inebriated mind, I was like, you just don't do that. Like, if you find a gate closed, you better close that gate. And I was like, whatever, like, this is kind of weird. I don't know these girls, I don't know Winky, I don't know where I am, I'm on this horse. And so we're just, we're going for it. And so getting to town, we stop for, you know, a beverage to sober us up, which is Budweiser. And so we pull up to the pub get a Budweiser, and then we just throw these horses in people's front yards, which is a little bit odd to me. And I was like, aren't they, aren't they gonna like poop a little bit? And she's like, well, let's see, you know, fertilize. They just move them down the road and they just keep going into people's front yards with picket fences. I'm like, okay, well, cool. So Christmas happens, I eat my Christmas lamb, RIP. And uh, the next day I go out and I find Ruby, which was like, four doors down and around the corner. I was like, oh, she's still alive. And uh, tack her up, ride to the race course. And I was like, this is gonna be awesome. Like, I just had 30 miles to bond with this horse and I'm feeling really good because I drank like maybe three quarters of what I drank the day before. And you know, I'm sure I'm not sober, but I'm not, not super drunk. And uh, that was about like the realm of where I could gauge my situation. Trot to the race course and I was like, yes, we're gonna do so well. This little fat pony and I are gonna crush it. And so the actual pistol goes off, which helps a lot when you're starting a horse race because the horses just will jump. And so we shoot down the, the, you know, the strip of grass with the grandstand on either side. And we're going, like we have 10 strides of gallop. I was like, yes. And then we have 15 strides of a really nice lope. I was like, not so much Ruby. And then we get to the grandstand where the photographer is for the Penguin News, which is the weekly newspaper full of gossip from Facebook. And I love it. And I just really wanted to be in it. And so at this point we're trotting and everyone else has finished. I was like, sweet, they got the pictures of the finalists and we're gonna be like the back page stars. And so we're trotting it and I'm just queen waving to everybody. 
Because I know that, you know this is a gambling country too, and I know a lot of people bet some money on the Mormon from Utah, aka the girl from Ohio. They lost a lot of money on me. But after that, I was like, man, it's gonna be a long 30 miles back. Like, Amy, I, I might need to take a day off work and I have to get back to work. I've got sheep to shear. And uh, she's like, oh, no, no, don't worry. We, uh, we take them to the end of the race course. We open the last gate and we just let them go. It's like, you have enough horses just to let them go every year? It's like, no, they walk their way home. I mean, you saw how barn sour Ruby was. Like, she'll be home in a week. I'm like, okay. So sure enough, we just took all of these horses from all of these different stations and we just kicked them out the gate. And then I was there for another three months. So I'd always like, hey, Amy, like, did Ruby get home? I'm kind of worried about her. She's a little, she's a little tired. And uh, she's like, yeah, yeah, mid-January, she, she wandered on home, just waddling along. And then I wandered on home, waddling along. And we had about 12,000 sheep. So you know the next three months was riding my motorbike and learning that there's a back break and becoming a little bit better at riding in the wind. Even though it was a really hazy Christmas, it's one that I will never forget. Thank you. Thanks, Caroline. Raised in the Midwest, Caroline Caldwell headed up to Maine for college and never looked back. After graduation, she was granted a Watson Fellowship which allowed her to travel to the far ends of the earth to work on sheep and cattle ranches and in remote places and extreme environments. After her return to the States, she continued ranching and traveling stateside until she found her perfect fit with Oxbow Cattle Company in Missoula and is happy to call Montana home. Thanks for listening to the Tell Us Something podcast. If you enjoy the stories you hear, please rate us on Apple Music or Stitcher. Leaving us a review and rating really helps get the podcast to more listeners, and we want to reach as many people as possible. Please also recommend the Tell Us Something podcast to one person who has never listened to it before. Thank you. We have two more stories in this episode. Before we get to them, I want to take a moment to thank our title sponsors. The Bookstore at the University of Montana, a local bookstore serving the students, faculty, and staff of the University of Montana, as well as the Missoula community. MontanaBookstore.com CabinetParts.com, the number one source for cabinet hardware since 1997. Anyone searching for the best kitchen cabinet hardware at a great price needs to go to CabinetParts.com. CabinetParts.com combines knowledgeable hardware specialists with the best online shopping experience nationwide. CabinetParts.com is the direct source for all of your cabinet hardware needs. The Good Food Store, supporting western Montana farmers and ranchers for almost 50 years, the Good Food Store supports the local folks creating their own beer, salsa, baked goods, ice cream, and more. Learn more at thegoodfoodstore.com. Logjam Presents. Headquartered in Missoula, Montana, Logjam Presents is an independent and privately owned live entertainment company. Logjam Presents is the exclusive operator and promoter of the Kettlehouse Amphitheater, the Wilma, the Top At Lounge, and Ogren Park. Logjam Presents has created a unique artist and concertgoer experience that is unmatched in the Northwest. Logjampresents.com All right, let's get back to the storytelling. Heidi West grew up in Germany and watched the Berlin Wall come down. She shares her story about the after-effects of the wall falling and how that forced her and her family to flee Germany. Her story is called Hemgong, or Going Home. Thanks for listening. 
Outside of my front door and across the valley, there are three castles, each on their own mountaintop. I'm living in an old rail railroad station and the train still runs in front of my house. There's a small road that connects the two closest towns that are a kilometer in either direction. I am allowed to run all the way to the end of the dirt road where there is a giant buckeye tree. The farmer piles his hay underneath it and when I climb to the very top of it, I can almost touch the lowest branches. There are wheat fields all around my house and I am just tall enough to look over the grass. I love plucking the green and unripe seeds out of, uh, out of the field and they taste sweet. I have a giant backyard and my favorite spot is in the top of the cherry tree that leans just over the fence. This is home for now. I'm allowed to roam, but my world is incredibly small. It consists of me, my mom, my dad, my brother, and my two younger sisters. We're constantly on the move. My mom is an American citizen, and my dad is a German citizen, and I spend my time alternating between countries, but I'm mostly in Germany. We move every couple of months. I'm homeschooled. I'm not allowed to cut my hair or wear pants. I have Bible study every day. I am, have an existential fear of dying. My dad prays the devil out of my bedroom and I am terrified of walking in the rhythm to rock music or, or dancing because this little girl knows that that's a sure way to go straight to hell. Somewhere in the background of my everyday life, the Berlin Wall comes down. And there's a sister city program that's established between East Germany and West Germany, and my family decides to host a young East German couple. The visit was kind of inconsequential. I barely remember it. I was much more focused on trying to fold newspapers into kites and fly them down that dirt road or trying to find hedgehogs in my backyard. The couple goes back to East Germany and eventually their relationship falls apart. My mom sees an opportunity to get us out of whatever the situation is that we're in. And she leaves my dad. And while most people are coming from east to west, we go from west to east. I moved to a city that's a thousand years old. It has narrow cobblestone streets and tightly packed old houses. And in the center of it all, on top of this sandstone mountain, there is um, what we call a Schlosskirche. It's a, a castle church. In the giant halls of that church, my mom and my stepdad sing the Requiem every Christmas. It's giant and it has huge stained glass panels and it smells like wax candles. I get to go to public school. I get to wear pants. I get to go to my first birthday party. My little brother starts taking cello lessons and I get to finally take ballet. 
And so twice a week, my little brother and I leave our house and we walk all the way down into the city center. We take turns carrying his heavy cello and I drop them off at the music school and then I keep walking to where I take my ballet lessons. The first two years are amazing. Everything is bright and shiny and everyone's full of hope and you can buy bananas at the grocery store. That's a really monumental change from before. But things are slowly changing and when I drop my brother off at the music school, there start being young men with shaved heads and black angry boots. The Soviet Union, or the former Soviet Union countries are falling apart and places like Bosnia-Herzegovina and Czechoslovakia are in civil war and refugees are coming into our community and more and more shaved heads and angry boots are showing up in our community as well and we're stuck somewhere in the middle. The same group that my family, that my mom and dad sing with every Christmas starts gathering for potlucks. We kids climb around the walls of the church courtyard and I sit next to a girl that's my age and she's crying. Her dad is going to stand between the protesters and the refugees. And just the night before, he had almost gotten hit by a Molotov cocktail. At this point, it's me, my brother, my two sisters, and a new brother, and a little sister. There's six of us. And my mom and dad bring food, and then at the end of the night, we walk down the dark streets and we go back home. One day, I'm climbing down the wooden ladder from the loft bed where two of my sisters and I sleep. And as I climb past the bedroom window, there's a red swastika on my window. My mom drives to Berlin to talk to the American embassy. What is she supposed to do? And the answer is wholly unsatisfying. So, little bit of history. Germany doesn't have freedom of the press. That is a privilege that was lost in the aftermath of World War II. And what that means is that all of that neo-Nazi literature that was being distributed on our market square was being printed right here in the United States. And the printer was going to be raided in the near future. And they were afraid that there was going to be a backlash on American citizens in the city that I was living in, which really just meant my mom because she was the only American citizen living in Fiedlenburg. And so, I'm sure it was a really hard choice, but she decided that we were going to leave. And so we packed up everything we could and gave away what we couldn't. We gave away our VW bus, our lime green Trabant, which was this boxy East German car, super cute, I'm sure they're not made anymore, and my five-speed bike, and our dog Sandy. And I started seventh grade in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, where there are no castles. These days, I am working my ass off to build a house on the north side. The, the four of us are living in a bus, 
and every night after I go to my jobs and do what I can on the house, I crawl into bed next to my equally exhausted husband. And even though I am so, so tired, I can't sleep. Ivory talks in her sleep. And Sylvan, he giggles. And part of the reason I can't sleep is that they are seven and 10. And that world events are not that different from what was going on when I was their age. And those events altered the trajectory of my life forever. The other reason I can't sleep is because I've lived in Missoula for 10 years. That is the entirety of my kids' lives, and it's the longest that I have ever lived anywhere. And I won't lie, there is a part of me that always wants to get up and run, to be on the move, to see a new place. But the thing is, I've made a choice to make this place my home and to build a house here. My kids have friends that they've had since they were all in diapers. And even though our geographic world is so much smaller than what I had when I was a kid, our connections in our community is so much bigger. Thanks, Heidi. In 2009, after a long drive from Stillwater, Oklahoma, Heidi West found home in Missoula's Northside neighborhood. She raises food and a family, turns pots at the clay studio of Missoula, and is immersed in an extensive renovation of the family's house, which was built in 1900. Heidi develops permanently affordable housing with the North Missoula Community Development Corporation and also holds elected office as Ward 1 City Council Representative. Heidi has a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and Studio Art with minors in German and Horticulture, as well as a Master of Science in Plant and Soil Science, all from Oklahoma State University. In our final story, Brad Lane happens on a funk music festival while he is hiking the Pacific Coast Trail. Brad's story is called The Trail Provides. Thanks for listening. In 2016, I had the privilege to walk from Mexico to Canada along the Pacific Crest Trail. Yeah. Uh, Spanning the entire length of California, Oregon, and Washington, covering some 2,500 miles, the entire five and a half months it took me to hike the trail can barely be contained to the 10 minutes of storytelling time I have on stage here tonight. Every day was truly an adventure, and you get to this point where you have this singular focus on one goal, and that is the simple goal to move forward. It's hard to complain about anything about my experience on the Pacific Crest Trail. The pounding foot pain, the vast array of insects I'd be swatting away at my face, and the scent of a wild animal that was just oozing from my pores. I'd go into towns for uh, resupplies or groceries, and you could just see on people's faces how bad I smelled. (laughs) There were low points, though, certainly. These these valleys between high mountain peaks. And one low point in particular is really where my story starts tonight. 
and that was around day 100 of hiking, somewhere in Northern California, around the halfway marker for the entire trail. In the previous 10 days of hiking, I had interacted with maybe two other people, this brother and sister combo I kept leapfrogging on trail. And at that point, I had shipped my tent forward to myself further along on the trail to save room in my backpack. Uh, and so I was sleeping on this blue tarp each night. And my routine for those last 10 days looked something like wake up on the ground, watch the sunrise, make coffee, eat breakfast by myself, hike for 14 hours, eat dinner by myself, and go to bed to kind of do it again the next day. And what I started to learn in those big, wide open spaces surrounded by no one is that the thoughts in your head just kind of ping off each other. And combine that with the 20 plus miles of hiking over mountainous terrain day after day, and it kind of just starts adding up. And I remember very vividly one night sitting next to my blue tarp, eating my usual dinner of two ramen noodle packets and a sporkful of peanut butter, watching this big, beautiful sunset on a Northern California landscape, and these questions kind of kept pinging around in my head. And there are questions like, what the fuck am I doing out here? <laughs> or why did I think this was a good idea? And can I even accomplish this large goal I had set out for myself? And when I scooted over onto my tarp and slid into my sleeping bag, those thoughts just kind of kept turning and turning and turning in my head. The next morning when I woke up, I still didn't have any answers to those questions, but I packed up my blue tarp, made breakfast, and did really only what I could do in that situation, that was move forward. What I did know that day, though, is that I was due to walk into and through the town of Belden. According to my trail notes, Belden had a population of 14. Yeah, so I wasn't expecting much fanfare. <laughs> when I started to make my way off the crest that day and down the mountain towards Belden, something I wasn't expecting did hit my ears, though. It was a bass line, a followed by percussion, and eventually an electric guitar. The music only got louder as I made my way down the mountain and towards Belden, and when I did arrive, I realized that Belden, population 14, was only in existence to serve as a venue for these large festivals and events. I didn't even know what day of the week it was, but I also quickly realized that I had just walked into the beginning hours of a three-day funk music festival. <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty good situation right off the bat. These funk festival attendees welcomed me. This wild, bearded animal who had just literally walked 1,300 miles to be there. Within the first 30 minutes, I had free beers in front of me. I was being passed some homegrown Northern California coffee. <laughs> the strong stuff. Uh, <laughs> within the first hour, I had a free wristband for the entire three-day event. 
That first night of the event, first night of Funk Festival, after some more caffeinated beverages were passed around, the headlining band that night, this band called Oregon, put on a great show, great show, full of dancing, full of funky music, and this vivacious lead singer with a set of pipes and some style to match. And after the show, I was introduced to the band. I was introduced to Oregon. And we talked for what felt like hours late into the night after their set, and we talked about art, and we talked about expression, and we talked about the pathway that any artist needs to take to get to where they want to be. And I probably talked about pooping in a cat hole too much. <laughs> but we got along, we got along. I stayed up the rest that entire night and into the next day, and everywhere I turned, there seemed to be someone new to talk to, someone new that was genuinely interested in my journey along the Pacific Crest Trail. As it turns out, the lineage between a thru-hiker or hiker trash and a funk festival attendee, it's a close relationship. <laughs> it's like cousins who probably call each other pretty often. <laughs> and it was certainly some of those caffeinated beverages that kept me up so much during this three-day event, but it was also the sheer excitement of being surrounded by so many energetic people. People wearing face paint and people wearing costumes and people who like to give hugs and some people that had a similar scent to me. <laughs> and it was the sheer excitement of being surrounded by so many people so many other human beings. One of my favorite highlights of the entire three-day event was what I would call the Sun Up Band. And that was this eight-person ensemble who played as the sun rose on a new day. And they would do this thing like every 20 minutes between the hours of 5 a.m. and 8 a.m. where the music would get slower and softer and slower and softer. And the lead singer would get on the mic and say something like, Okay, everybody, thanks for coming out. It's been a long night. Looks like the new day is here. Maybe we should all go get some sleep. And the music would get slower and softer and slower and softer. And then drummer would kick back in and all eight members would just launch into this new 20-minute jam full of energy. And every single time, it got me. <laughs> it got me good. Just this direct line to my funny bone. It still gets me. After the three-day funk festival, I was a little bit tired. Maybe strung out would be a good word to describe it. But I was also just totally re-energized in my efforts. And I won't say that the second half of the Pacific Crest Trail is any easier than the first, especially as I started to get into my 30-plus mile-a-day routine. But I knew it. I knew it as it was happening that this impromptu funk festival experience was going to make my simple goal of moving forward that much more manageable. And that last day, as everybody was packing up their belongings into their car to make what I can only imagine to be the long car ride home for some of them, I shouldered on my backpack and climbed 12 or 13 miles up and out of Belden, back onto the crest 
to resume my journey where I would eventually hike out of Northern California, cross Oregon, and get through Washington to make it to the Canadian border and never eat ramen noodles ever again. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Originally from Iowa, Brad Lane is a recent transplant to Missoula. With other residencies, including the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia and the Cascades of Washington, his desire to be in the Rockies brought Brad to Montana. His career in freelance writing made Missoula seem like the right place. You can find more of Brad's work and his other adventures at bradlanewriting.com. Thanks for listening to our stories today. Tell Us Something is proud to be fiscally sponsored by Missoula Community Foundation, a 501c3 organization. Missoula Community Foundation has been providing leadership to Missoula nonprofits and inspiring long-term philanthropy in Missoula since 2007. MissoulaCommunityFoundation.org Thanks to all of our sponsors. Fact and Fiction, where books, authors, ideas, and readers interact. FactandFictionBooks.com Missoula Broadcasting Company, locally owned and operating four stations, The Trail 103.3, Missoula's Quality Rock, and a part of our unique Western Montana community featuring local DJs who love Missoula and know their music. Jack FM 105.9, playing what they want. U 104.5 FM, your at-work listening station. And ESPN 102.9, focusing on city, state, and regional sports, giving exposure and insight to teams and athletes in and around Western Montana. Learn more at MissoulaBroadcasting.com. Enlightened Lab Float Center. Enlighten Lab is a spa featuring sensory deprivation or floating as a wellness therapy. Unplug, reset, and recharge in their state-of-the-art float tanks or sweat it out in their infrared sauna. Learn more at EnlightenLab.com. That's E-N-L-Y-T-E-N-L-A-B.com. Gecko Designs. Visit the Gecko Designs team on North Higgins in Missoula or online at GeckoDesigns.com. Thanks to Cash for Junkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at cashfordrunkersmusic.com. Podcast production by me, Mark Moss. Thank you to everyone who attends the live events, those of you who download the podcasts, and most especially to the storytellers Jim Beyer, Caroline Caldwell, Heidi West, and Brad Lane. The next live Tell Us Something event is March 18th at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. The theme is Stranger in a Strange Land. We are taking story pitches for that show right now. To pitch your story, call... 406-203-4683. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to the Tell Us Something podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can stream all of the stories ever told on the Tell Us Something stage for free and learn about upcoming events and ticket sales at tellussomething.org. You can also learn about our new storytelling workshops and schedule a workshop for yourself. Go to tellussomething.org to learn more.